Welcome to Elements of Community, a podcast about discovering and exploring the elements of community. I am Lucas Root, and each week we talk with a community leader about what makes their community thrive and bring value to both the leaders and the members. Join me as we unpack the magic of the elements of community. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining me. It's kind of funny because this is our third try. (laughs) And sometimes when I go through three tries, you're not the only one. I've gone through three actual tries to get live on a show, although it's not live. Um, But sometimes when I go through multiple tries, I'm like, yeah, maybe it's not supposed to work out. And sometimes I'm just like, Maybe it is supposed to work out, but differently, differently than we had planned. And I think that's the case with you. This time, it's differently than I had envisioned when we first talked about getting on the show. So I have really enjoyed getting to know you over the last somewhere between six months and three years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are some things about you that I really appreciate. You're not the only one I've had on the show who is also a big time traveler. And the way that you conduct your life is inspiring because, you know, I think people should have really important goals and rebuild their lives around those goals, like traveling the world. And I invite you to talk a little bit about that. In addition to that, unlike me, you have always been an entrepreneur, whereas I went through a period where I was in corporate and then graduated myself into entrepreneurship. So, and I find that inspiring too. With all that out there in the air, how do you like to introduce yourself? Hmm. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So you've mentioned the world travels and the entrepreneurship. So it's as good a place to start as any. My husband, Michael, and I have been full-time entrepreneurs building our company, virtualcoachingsales.com for about 13 years, building and managing sales teams for people like Deepak Chopra, Ali Brown, and other leaders in the industry. And about four years ago, we sat down. Yeah, we've been really blessed to work with some incredible people. And at a business retreat, probably four years ago, we sat down and said, what is this all for? What are we working so hard to build? Why are we doing this? And we thought about what we wanted to create. And we said, well, it really would look like traveling the world. And so we decided we're going to set the intention we're going to do. 12 months of travel down through South America. And then we're like, well, what if we did 24 cities in 24 months? And then we discovered we really wanted to do 60 cities in 60 months. And it just kept expanding and spiraling. So two and a half years ago, we took our three kids who were five, seven, and nine years old at the time. And we hit the road. We did a road trip across the US, jumped down to Mexico, traveled to the bottom of Argentina, jumped down to Antarctica for a couple of weeks, over to Southeast Asia for several months, did a road trip down from down the East Coast of Australia. Now we're back home, taking care of family for a little bit. And then the plan is to finish up with Europe, Africa and India in the next two years. And yeah, one of the things that just made that really easy to your point is when you know what you want, everything else in your life gets very simple 
just streamlines it down and it really gets clear when you're making decisions what's important what's bringing you closer to that goal and what's pushing you further away from that goal. So it took us about two years to line everything up. We had to get Michael's oldest son out of high school. We had to get the youngest one out of diapers. We had to get the business to the place where it could sustain itself, even if we had intermittent Wi-Fi. So there were a lot of logistics that we had to move around to make it possible, but it's absolutely been worth it. I love that. That's funny. When I decided to graduate from corporate, it took me about two years to really get things lined up too. Mm -hmm. wonder if there's something there. Yeah. And my question, is it an internal adjustment or external adjustment? Obviously, probably both, but that kind of as a thinking of a gestation period for life transformation, that it probably is about the right time frame for that. Now, I mean, that opens up some thought. I that isn't the rabbit hole I want to go down today, but that's fun. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So when you left, this is where things get fun, I think. When you left, you walked away from a community and rebuilt your entire life around being a nomad. How did you bring community into your life while you were on the road? Hmm. That is a really neat question because we did, we uprooted from our family in Southern California and we just hit the road. And the way it's easiest to think of it as like a root ball, like we just kept rolling. And so all the roots had to go internal. So the five of us became very close. The first couple of weeks, let's be honest, the first couple of months were very rough because spending 24 seven with people that you usually only see at like before you drop them off at school and after you pick them up from school. And we had to be much more intensive about setting boundaries and clarity in our communication and much more intentional about teaching courtesy and compassion for one another because everybody's tired and every after red eye sleeps and everything else. So we as a family had to seriously strengthen our ability to communicate effectively, which I know is one of your elements of adulthood. And so, yeah, complex communication was critical as we started to evolve, like learning how to read each other's emotional signals. And then I think the other thing that I found is wherever we go, where we find friends, oh, we are so thirsty. (laughs) We put roots down immediately. So When we came back from Antarctica, we stayed in an Airbnb in Ushuaia, southernmost city in the world. And in our apartment complex, there was a family with small kids our kids' age. And so they happened to speak enough English that we sort of invited ourselves into their game of tag. And they invited us to Christmas dinner because it was Christmas in Argentina. And oh man, just as a side note, holiday dinners without community suck. <laughs> we did Thanksgiving dinner in Bariloche with like cheese and wine because they didn't have any Thanksgiving foods. And I was like, oh, really missing home and family. Like it's amazing how our holidays become touch points for this experience of family and community and the nostalgia that sort of builds up around a particular holiday. So we were, it was very nice that we got to do Christmas with new friends. They welcomed us in. Totally different though, right? 
The sun is still up at 11.30 at night. The kids are not even, like, we're not even sitting down to dinner until 10. And that was early because they were doing it for the silly Americans who eat early dinners. And the kids all stayed up until 1 a.m. to wait for Papa Noel to arrive. And, and it was just a completely different experience of Christmas. But we bonded with that family so deeply that when they're like, well, we're only here for a week or two and then we're going up to Villa Blanca. Would you like to join us? We're like, heck yes. Like, I mean, we're well. So I just sort of followed their family around Argentina for several weeks because we didn't want to let them go. And then we had to fly home. So it was, but yeah. So when we do find friends, same thing in Bali. As soon as we made friendships, it became home. And I think that's my takeaway. We started this journey looking for our forever home. I have this postcard in my head of forests, mountains, and a river where I want to put my homestead and like settle down, put like a permanent forever home. And we've been looking all over the world for it. And what I've come to realize is that home is where your people are. So we have a home in Ushuaia. We have a home in Bali because that's where we've built relationships. And now home is wherever we are. So our close-knit root ball and home is wherever we find humans that we love and care about. And so, yeah, it's really expanded how we think about home, how we think about family and which is what you call community. So yeah, it's been beautiful. That's so cool. Home is where your people are. Wow. And the story that arrives there is fantastic because your postcard, I've been there. Mm -hmm. I can tell you where that is, but it's not where your people are. Well, I plan on importing my people once I find it. <laughs> we'll just take them and bring them and <laughs> put them on the land with us. <laughs> yeah. Some of them. Then you'll as have... As many as we can say yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, then, then you'll have your tight knit root ball. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the plan. <laughs> Unfortunately, anywhere I go, I have a tight-knit root ball. Every time I said the word root, I can't use that as a barometric for success of having built community because my tight-knit root ball goes with me everywhere. Especially when <laughs> I don't comb my hair in the morning. I think you should call your community the root ball. Oh. Yeah. And no hair combing. Yeah, no, for us curly-haired people, that is not a good long-term solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you. If you don't mind me asking, had you experienced community in a way that felt the same before you went traveling? Not much. The instance that's coming to mind is when I spent three months in Oxford. Again, interesting that being displaced from the thing that you think of as home is what preceded finding the first place that I ever felt at home. So... Now, I've been to Oxford. Like, it is a lovely city. Yeah. And they had probably 20 of us American students pulled up in this beautiful English manor on a hill overlooking the spires and called the vines. And 
we made friends with the students when we were going to classes and such, but it was really those 20 students. We made dinner together. We watched every episode of Friends together. We, my friend Matt would play the piano and we would have sing-alongs in the living room together. We would come home to freshly baked pies and we would bike into town and then bike home together and just doing life together. It was exceptional. Like we built life-changing friendships in a very short period of time. And yeah, I like my own family of origin was never that experience of community that, that I found there. And yeah, coming home, it was the first time I'd ever experienced nostalgia. Like I had never looked back. I had always looked forward. And that was the first time I experienced homesickness. So yeah, it was a weird experience that I had to go halfway around the world both times now in order for, to find the thing that I was looking for. Huh. What a gift. You found it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you did things together. What else did you have that really made it home? Cook together, sing together. What else? Yeah, I'm comparing the experiences of the vines with our friends in Ushuaia to see what the similarities are. Food. I mean, I'm Italian, so food's always going to be at the center of every community. Yeah. <laughs> the, dinner, the dining room table is critical. Far away from the camera, my nose is still poking, so, you know. But for me, I think the family dinner coming around the table together, I feel like that's just the microcosm. Like... What's happening there is not eating. Like, what's happening yeah. there is communing, which makes perfect sense why Jesus decided to have a Last Supper and turn it into communion. Like, this idea that we come together around bread and wine, and this is a symbol of us partaking of each other's lives in a really deep, transformational way. There is something that gets transformed. This is not food for just your body anymore. This is food for your soul. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to, there's probably more than that. I'm just trying to think of what it is. What allows you to have that experience of connection <clears throat> with complete strangers? And how? why is that easier than people we've grown up with our whole life? Do you have an answer for that? I have some, yeah. Well, the first is, when you're outside of the country, the fact that you share a language becomes stark contrast. And one of the elements of community, of course, is common language. So as 20 Americans in Britain, you all sharing a language is the stark contrast. The same thing in Nishwaya. You said these were. this was a family that had a whole bunch of kids and spoke enough English, so now you had a language that you could share. Now, you could have mm -hmm. chosen a family that doesn't speak English, and you could have learned enough Spanish to speak with that family, right? So you would have built a common language if you'd made different choices. But the, the shared language opened it up. And when you grow up with a whole bunch mm -hmm. of people, you all speak exactly the same way about exactly the same thing. So there isn't any contrast in your shared language. So it makes it 
less exceptional. Then when you have, let's say, a best friend or family, go ahead. No, I was just thinking about like, it sounds like we have to take our root ball out of the context in order to appreciate it. So I'm thinking of like family road trips, except usually you're hating each other by the end of the car ride. But that idea that you would have to see your family in a different backdrop for you to appreciate that the communication that you share is distinct and shared by contrast. So it's interesting that contrast is what well, that shows was the first us. But yeah, see, we when you went on the road, you even talked about this. The first thing that you had to do as a family was rebuild your family dynamics in order to be able to appreciate the new experience of being a family on the road. And part of that was, you said it, courtesy, which is changing the language that your family speaks. Speaking of family speaking, you might hear munchkins in the background because it's summer I hear break. munchkins. We are all in the house together. <laughs> I hear munchkins. There's no need to hide them. So by rebuilding the language that you speak inside the family, you changed from being people who share a house. Oh, I see. Okay. And blood, perhaps, into a community. My guess is that you did other things along the way. You went from sharing a dinner table together to communing together over food. And yeah. that there was actually a meaningful change from before the road trip to after the road trip in how you handled your food. You mean with our fingers? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So. And I'll bet yeah. that if you think back to your time in Oxford, the same thing happened. When you all first started sharing space, at first you just shared space. And then you all sort of made a conscious choice to more than just share space. So the language was an impetus but it wasn't the thing that made it. it, was just one of the elements that made it. So what I'm hearing is this like transfiguration from the common to the communal. So we're taking normal language, turning it like common language to communal language, common food, communal food. Yes? Yeah. Okay. What else? What else did we do while we were on the road? Kids. Communing over food is a form of a project, but my guess is it's not the only one. So you started doing things like when you would get to a city that you wanted to explore, you would, instead of all of you going your own separate ways, you know, one kid's going to soccer practice and another kid's going to their friend's house, you all chose together to go explore together. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a choice you could have made when you were living in your hometown, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. And equally, when you got to a new city, you could have made a choice about doing things individually, but you didn't. You all chose to do it together. They couldn't. Sometimes we did. <laughs> but yeah, that is an interesting. And do you think that that's cultural? 
that in the United States, our roots go out instead of in? Or is it just when you're in a single location, it makes sense that your roots would go out no matter which soil you're planted in? But you do that anyway. Exploring is a part of being human. And even when you lived in your hometown before you created the community of your family, you still did exploring. The change wasn't the exploration. The change was choosing to do it together as a family. Okay. Go out to coffee with your friends. You go out to the movie theater with your husband. You go out and try out new restaurants. You know, kids go meet friends. You go for walks. Like, exploring is not novel. And when you get to a new city, exploring... The things that you are exploring, the search for novelty, is no different than the search for novelty when you were in your home city. Ironically, when everything is novel, you start searching for the common. <laughs> like, I have an almost insatiable appetite for new things. And once I was, it was, it took 18 months for me to finally say, you know what, I think going home sounds cool. <laughs> I think being in one spot for a few months sounds fantastic, but it took 18 months of seeing different sites at different times and different people and different languages almost every week or every other week. That level of change was what it took for me to finally appreciate the familiar. It was interesting. Yeah. Cool shared value so communing over a meal is shared value but it's not the only one i love to use the example of hugs as shared value now here's my question how did you establish fair shared value in oxford now are you using shared value or shared values like what nope are you like we contribute to one another or we have the same attitude perspectives worldview contribute okay So I think it's the example of doing things for and with each other. So the other girls making pies and sharing them with everybody. They could have made just one pie, but they decided to make them like 10 pies. Yeah. And do pie nights every Monday. And Matt could have gone and practiced the piano on his own. But instead, he invited the entire house to come down into the living room and do a sing-along. We could have just sat and watched friends in our own bedroom, but we everybody come watch them with us. So is it that each of us has the things that we love to do anyway, and we're inviting others to come and share and partake of our area of brilliance? Is that kind of the direction that you're heading? Yes. Okay. And in Ushuaia, it would be we invited them over for dinner and then they invited us over for dinner. We got to play games together. But is the contribution, does it have to be tangible or is it like conversation? Right? Yes. So for us, when we're uh, surrounded by art, what? Conversation, hugs, 
kids playing together in that case is actually shared value to you and to the kids. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. You said if you could learn enough Spanish, I'm like, Argentinians don't speak Spanish. (laughs) At least not recognizable to this Mexican Spanish speaker. And so even though we knew Spanish, we were surrounded by people who could understand us, but we couldn't understand them. And so with all their Ys and LLs turning into shh sounds, it, the Argentinian Spanish just is almost unrecognizable to my ear. So just having a person to speak to and like talk back to me and have that experience. Yeah, when we are here in the United States, you take that for granted. You're like, okay, but how good is the conversation? If I'm gonna call that this conversation is a contribution to my soul, it better be a really good conversation. But there it was like, hey, you and I are able to communicate about the weather. This is a win. So any level of communication was contribution in that context, yeah. So I have a couple of different meals in my life that I remember really above and beyond all the rest. I have my anniversary meal where my wife told me that I looked like death. People on this podcast have heard this story and, other, you know, you'll hear it again probably. Really, truly above and beyond any other meal I've had. My dinner, my wedding dinner. My wife and I have been to a five-star, five-diamond chef's table meal. Like, extraordinary. Like, mind-blowing. Also, it cost over $1,000. I'm not going to be doing that very often. I'm glad I did it. Like that meal was amazing. And then I went, you know this about me and some, you know, I've talked about it on my podcast from time to time. I hiked half the Appalachian Trail and in one of my particular legs of hike, I skipped a town because I was on a roll. Like I, I was, I was flying through and I ran out of food before I got to the next town. And I, you know, there were some people that were hiking with me. And they were on their way to the town, so they were low on food as well, which, you know, none of us were close to death. It wasn't particularly terrible. And also, it had been two and a half days since I'd eaten anything. I'm sitting there in the lean-to. They show up, and I'm chilling. Like, it's okay. Like Two and a half days, I was nowhere near death. I probably still weighed over 190 pounds, so, like... But, you know, we all sat down over a meal. They scraped together some hamburger helper and some rice and lentils. And truly, to this day, that's one of my top five meals ever. And it was hamburger helper. Like, really, you know, there is nothing special about it ever. And that was one of my top five meals in my entire life. And inside the context of the stories that you're sharing right now, Caitlin, it's interesting to hear that the contrast and that's sort of becoming a theme in this conversation here it's interesting to hear that the contrast is itself part of what makes the experience special when you can't talk to anyone just being able to talk to somebody is such a huge value that it created several weeks of travel plans for you just because you could talk to them right when you can talk to everybody now you start looking for a different level of value, right? You look for the contrast. And one of my top five meals in my life is truly a chef's table five-star meal. And another of my top five meals in my entire life was truly hamburger helper. Hmm. And it was the contrast that made it so. 
Yeah, that makes sense. The proverb that came to mind as you were speaking was better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. This idea that it doesn't really matter what you eat. It's who you're sharing the food with. I would imagine that even if you're eating a thousand dollar dinner with people who you did not like or enjoy, it still probably wouldn't be in your top five meal. <laughs> it might be top five most memorable. Memorable stores. <laughs> <laughs> like, as in, let's never do that again. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> to spend yeah. that on a meal, it's going to be with someone I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Cool. Interesting. Contrast is becoming a theme of our conversation now. Contrast With... for the sake of clarity and appreciation. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And contrast created your first feeling of home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does contrast continue to contribute to your feeling of home today? I think being back for the last nine months, so when it was supposed to only be three, I think having now the contrast of being on the road, of being on our own, of being just the five, and now being back in our old house, the contrast of our travels makes me appreciate in one location, getting to have consistent Wi-Fi with a consistent backdrop for my videos, it also makes me appreciate having family. So we're going to dinner with Michael's family tonight. We're going to do a barbecue. It was kind of a, hey, do you want to get together? Yeah, let's do it. So we didn't have to do months of planning <laughs> to make sure that this date lined up. It was just, hey, we happen to all be in the same space. Would you like to go eat? Absolutely, let's do that. And so we can throw it together and hang out. You and I have talked about the fact like when you only get a certain amount of minutes with a person, you want to like that feeling like every minute must count as opposed to when you're like, we've got our lifetime, we can afford to watch a B-level movie and waste 90 minutes, not a problem. So I think having the freedom for frivolity is an interesting experience oh. that being home again allows us to enjoy the casual in a way that we don't when we're on the road. We have to be in a location abroad at least three weeks before it becomes okay to do the mundane thing, right? So if we only have three days in a city, it is back-to-back -back sightseeing because we want to take every Instagram photo and check every list off the bucket list, item off the bucket list before we have to hit the road. But if we're in a place for three weeks, now we have to go to the grocery store and we have to go to the bus stop and we have to do normal life. So it takes us a long time to get to that place of the casual, the familiar. And here, when we don't have a sightseeing itinerary that we have to accomplish in a certain amount of time, we get to just relax and say, hey, you know what sounds great? Taking a nap. You know what sounds great? Like not doing anything important today. Um, I do love that. So yeah, I think there's this 
that yeah right we share that so the contrast of constant change constant awareness always being on and attentive versus now the luxury of autopilot if that makes sense we have autopilot Oof. isn't that cool i don't think i've yeah, ever thought you're... of it as a luxury mm-hmm. that's because we I... are in it for seven <laughs> right I got to tell you, you know, I've spent a lot of hours on the road over the last year and a half, and autopilot is absolutely a luxury. <laughs> well, in your case, it's actual auto driving. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you think about just from a hierarchical perspective, what needs to be in place for your brain to not pay attention to its surroundings? Like, the physiological needs are met, the psychological needs are met, you are fed and safe, and you've done this thing enough times that it is not requiring like prefrontal cortex decision-making energy to navigate what you're about to go through. Like how many of our ancestors ever got to experience that? Gone. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that's a gift that you can give to community, or maybe it's a gift that is contributed to from. Unpack that. Well, you need to feel safe. You need to be fed. Uh, your psychological needs to be needs to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the luxury of autopilot is only available through community. I'd buy that. Otherwise, it's the curse of autopilot. <laughs> Interesting. So community is the only thing that allows you to achieve that state. Even if you're a loner, right? Even if you, like, I'm thinking of my neighbor that I grew up with. He's been single his whole life, never interacted with our cul-de-sac, went to work every day, came back. We never saw him. But even that level of chosen solitude is only made possible by the fact that he had people to construct his house, people to maintain the roads, people to get the food people to hire him at work, people to pay him money so he could buy the food so he could drive on the roads to get back home, right? <laughs> so we've sublimated our community experience, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary, right? That the infrastructure that we've built as a society, we've, oh, this is an interesting idea. We've done so much of the community building that we no longer need faces associated with the benefits that used to come exclusively through a faced community. So we saw this a lot in Guatemala. We had a flat tire and this angel just appeared out of nowhere and helped us change the tire. And we tried to pay him and he said no, and he walked off. And we realized in Guatemala, you need faces. <laughs> you need human, actually people 
to come and rescue you because you do not have a phone number that dials a AAA that sends an anonymous human to come and do the work for you. Like your network really is the determining factor of how well you're able to live. And you're close enough to the survival line that like if you don't have that community, you're not going to experience a very good quality of life. Now we have corporations, we have entities, we have Bonds and Caltrans and our employers and AAA. We have entities that we are in community with, but the actual individuals are replaceable parts now, which is an interesting idea that it's We've built a machine that allows us to act like machines. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. What a powerful state. We've built a machine that allows us to act as machines. Is that what you were running away from? When I say it like that, I think so. Like... Uh, when I say I have this insatiable appetite for change, I think that's what I'm revolting against, right? I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to be on autopilot. I don't want to get to the end of my life and like, you know, I only have a handful of memories that actually stand out. Most of what I did was the same routine, doing the same thing in the same place, in the same way, with the same humans. Like, yeah, it's, that does scare me, I think, to, to not pay attention to my own life. I think that would scare me too. In fact, that might be also what I was running from. Yeah. When were you running? When I left Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, I had a nice little acme cloud of dust behind me when I took off. <laughs> the, the sound you effect. You run all the way out all over the cliff and like we're hanging in midair for a while. <laughs> yeah, and I looked back and I was like, oh, thank God. And then I started to fall. <laughs> <laughs> oh... Mm -hmm. yep. And like all entrepreneurs, I built my parachute while I was falling. Amen. It's the only way to do it. You got to jump off the cliff. Otherwise, it's not going to work. The yep. airplane will stay on the ground, even if you build it in all of its detail. Yep. A hundred percent. So you were running away from your own machine experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Without question. Yep. And I've talked about it that way. I've never actually used it as a, I've never said machine experience. I've said Wall Street to me was the antithesis of human, which is machine. And it's interesting the way you look at it. The autopilot that we make possible becomes the antithesis of human, the faceless mm. machining of our lives. Makes us faceless. Yeah. If everyone else is faceless, so am I. Mm -hmm. Because we need to be seen in order to see ourselves. Contrast is, in fact, the theme of this episode, apparently. <laughs> apparently. Uh, so the machines can't see us. So 
it's like we've lost our ability to see ourselves that the community when i can see you and you have a face and i'm looking i can see myself reflected in your eyes now i have an identity right but by creating a society of faceless support there's no mirror left for me to see myself reflected and so i think that's probably why we see so much mental illness is we don't have somebody to look us in the eyes and say, I see you, I know you, I appreciate you. Like, so yeah, I think your thesis that community is what makes us human, I'm understanding it on a different level as a result of this conversation. Cool. <laughs> and I agree. Community actually had a, a really big argument with love, not shouting and screaming, but a really big argument with one of my closest friends, Dan, recently about exactly that mental health. The mental health experience that we have in this country is made possible by a lack of community. Ooh. Fascinating. Mental health as a luxury, right alongside our automated lifestyle, like autopilot and mental illness are the luxuries of civilization. Automated community. Of automated community. <laughs> I think that's a mic drop moment, I think. That does punctuate the conversation you and I have just had, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, then, with that, I use three questions to end all of my interviews. <laughs> all right. The first is, for anyone who's been inspired by this conversation and can't wait to reach out to you, what is the one best way for them to find you? Probably send me an email. Caitlin, C-A-I-T-L-I-N, at ecstaticway.com. Probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Amazing. Second question. This is my favorite curveball of all time. I use it because it was used on me. And I loved it. The question is, if there was one question you wish I had asked you but have not, what would it be? Oh, wow. That is a curveball. Huh. You couldn't like maybe give this <laughs> or <laughs> what is the question? What is my favorite color? That would have been a nice, easy question. <laughs> Are you telling me that your biggest interest coming out of this conversation would have been an easy question? Ah, interesting. Oh, I want to go back onto autopilot. Hmm, that is a very interesting way to interpret what I just threw at you. Dang it. Okay, I wish you would ask me an easier question. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. Dang it. can't accuse me of not listening. You do. You listen exceptionally well. 
Okay. <clears throat> All right. Now I'm just going to go and be convicted. <laughs> yeah. Caitlin, thank you for joining. Wait, what was the third question? What's your favorite color? <laughs> Purple. <laughs> no kidding. Mine too. See, we found common ground. Salvage it. We, we do Repeat. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any parting words? I think what I'm walking away with is how do I allow myself to be seen more fully? What does that entail on my part? Where am I contributing to the facelessness? That is a mic drop moment. Thanks for joining us this week on Elements of Community. Make sure to visit our website, elementsofcommunity.us, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.